Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Today we are starting a new series. Yeah, I think so. In the book of Isaiah. And uh, what you need to know is that Isaiah is big. Oh, which I didn't really, really appreciate how big Isaiah is until I started reading it and trying to put together a series in Isaiah. I'm like, wow, this is big. It's big in size, uh, 66 chapters, and none of them are very short. It's big in scope, and it's got a massive view of the world and the purposes of God, and his interaction with humanity. It looks all the way to the future, to the very end. It's big, and it's big in significance. And I've read a few books to prepare for this series. One of them said, Isaiah is the fifth gospel in the Bible. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Because it is so clear about God's intervention to save humanity through the Messiah. Another book said, it's the Romans of the Old Testament. It's a theological contribution so significant. And another book, it said, Isaiah is the Bible within the Bible. Ooh, big in significance. 66 books in the Bible, by the way. 66 chapters in Isaiah. 39 chapters in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. There is a break in Isaiah after chapter 39, a clear distinction between the first 39 chapters and the following 27. The books are they're smart, men and women. They know what they're talking about. Isaiah is big. And I want to encourage you to take on the challenge of reading it. If you've currently been finding it difficult to get into the Bible, here is your moment. Take on a chapter a day of Isaiah. And by the time we motion the way through this series, you'll be all done. In about two or three weeks, you'll hit a very difficult fortnight. <laughs> where for a number of chapters, God tells everyone he's going to destroy them. Uh, I think you to keep going. It gets better. But as you read it, you'll discover that you recognize an awful lot of Isaiah, whether you know you do or not. You will read bits and go, oh, I know that from Carol Services. Or, oh, I thought that book was in the New Testament because it is the most quoted book other than the Psalms from the Old Testament. It, it was also the chief um, uh, inspiration for the imagination of the New Testament. The imagery the New Testament is using, the picture it's painting of the world that we live in is borrowed liberally from Isaiah. And you don't realise until you sort of begin to read through, you go, oh wow, he's taking this bit from here and that bit from there. Even as we read today in a minute, you will recognise some of the things that are said, maybe even from what we read last week together, too. So Isaiah is big, it's significant, but the reason we're doing this book is not because it's big. Um, In fact, that was very really a reason not to do it. We're doing Isaiah because everywhere we turn, even in those very depressing chapters, as God tells everyone he's going to destroy them, hope springs up. Little glimpses of it in places, raging torrents of hope, as we're about to discover today. There is hope really in this book, left, right, and centre. And as we were preparing our uh, plans for this year, we're like, you know what? In the autumn and winter coming up. We are going to need a sort of homework. We should do a series which is majorly 
of hope. And that's why we're here in Isaiah. And you will hopefully find it to be encouraging. Some bits are difficult to read, but there are some monumental messages of hope for us in the midst of challenging times. We're going to read this morning two chapters of Isaiah. Yes, on the busiest day in church life ever, I've decided that we would preach from two more chapters and I'm going to read them all. Thank you. <laughs> I can just sense the excitement as it back in. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so you're going to read them, then you'll cheer. We're going to read chapter 54 and chapter 55. They follow, those of you who are looking at maps, chapter 53 which is perhaps the most famous chapter of Isaiah. It's the chapter in which we discover that the servant of the Lord, this figure that goes to the book that we're waiting to see, we discover that servant of the Lord is actually the suffering servant of the Lord, and it finishes that he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgressions. Isaiah 53 paints the most vivid picture that we have in Scripture of the Messiah dealing with sin, and with its effects on our relationship with God. Chapter 54 and 55 are like the floodgates of heaven have been thrown open by the Messiah's victory, and there is now a torrent of eternal divine blessing and peace flowing your way. They are brilliant. Want to read them? Open your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 54. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching today in the minus five minutes that I've got. <laughs> out of respect and honour for the kids' work, we're going to be here a while if you haven't noticed, because they've only just gone out and prepared a good stint. So, chapter 54. If your lunch is burnt, someone will have you around. <laughs> have I laid this point enough yet? More jokes? Not yet. I'll save the one about it reading dead. Okay. Um, chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. Hallelujah. And remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back, as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, 
when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn, listen, not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established, tyranny will be far from you, you will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen! Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of them. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love, honest to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the people. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is that my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills come on, will burst into song before I actually see in the song. Sorry, I got lost my prayer I was about to sing. Burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap. They'll clap their hands. They'll clap. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever.
And now we will see what we don't often preach in two chapters of the book. I am going to highlight very quickly for us three key themes. We started in this chapter, in these chapters today, 80% of the way from the book, which is an odd place to start when you're reading the book, right? For a good reason. You know when you're reading a mystery book or a crime thriller or a whodunit, anyone read those books? Like a Warren, yeah, Cadbottle, Chris Marple, Agatha Christie. You know, there's a scene in every single whodunit book ever where all the major characters they stand and there's a fireplace with a wooden fire in it. And that amateur detective explains to everyone how it happened whilst the professional detective watches on the net. <laughs> and they say, this is who did it, and this is how they did it, and this is how they were going to get away with it, this is how I figured it out. Yeah, you know that scene? That's this book. This is these chapters. All the themes of the book come together and collide, and are weave together in a moment. And now if you read that book, the mystery book, and then read the rest of the book, you know what's going on all the time. And it's nice to build suspense and the rest of it, but as I was pretty hard-going sometimes, it's quite nice to know what's going on. Uh, so I thought I'd start at the end and then that. That's okay? Great. And so these are the three key themes that are all woven together in this chapter that make sense of the entire book of Isaiah, and in fact the entire book of the Bible. Are you ready? Thank you. Number one, human failure. Human weakness. It begins versus, uh, in verse one, People have got a fruitless when they're supposed to be fruitful. They are not doing what they're supposed to do. Verse 4, we see that they are shamed from their youth. Something in their formative years was rotten. Verse 7 and 8, we find that they provoked the anger of God to such an extent that he cut them off. And sometimes we read these bits, we get uncomfortable because we think, no, God doesn't do that. And then if you read like the Old Testament story, you discover that it takes God centuries to follow through on what he's told them to happen. Like, God is ridiculously indulgent of his people. I've been, I'm reading Kings again at the moment in my, in my read the Bible. I'm like, God, just hurry up and smite them already. <laughs> How would you let them get away with this? And he told them, if you're faithful and obey, I'll establish the throne and be kind to you. My love will never be removed from you. And yet they keep throwing their nose at you and setting up altars to other gods and running away from you, doing everything you told them not to do. How are you so patient? We think God's like us. He's not. It took him centuries, centuries before he followed through. Such was his patience and grace with the people of God. They provoked his anger and cut off just for a moment. We find that the city, Jerusalem, is afflicted by storms. It's a picture of war. Isaiah is a very difficult book around dating. We might talk about that another time, we might not. But at this point, at the very least, the northern kingdom of Israel has been taken. By the Babylonians. And eight miles north of Jerusalem are fires of an army so much bigger than Judah's army that they are terrified. Like at night they look out and they see the fire and the smoke rising from an enemy army that's coming to kill them. Their city is at the very least under siege that hasn't really been destroyed because of their faith. They have failed to do what God asked them to do. To fulfill the call of God upon their lives, to be faithful and to obey Him. Major theme. Their world, therefore, is falling apart, it is fractured, and it is contracting. Where the world should have been big, it's becoming small. 
where it should have been holding falling apart. It was a little bit like our world sometimes, doesn't it? It would have been very difficult to hear these two chapters if your world was like that. I think it's worth remembering this is the other side of Jesus. And that torrent of lavish eternal divine blessing that we just read would have felt a million miles away from my experience. We'll come back to that. Second key theme is the promise of future hope. You see this one meandering through the passage too? Although they are fruitless, God is saying, you are going to need a big tent. There's going to be a reversal of their experience. Their cities have been taken from them, but their descendants are going to take cities. The descendants are going to take them. Although they were shamed, it's going to be forgotten. What a promise. You know that thing? That thing that you would desire the world to separate and the ground to swallow you up if I was to put it on the screen. Imagine that being forgotten forever. Shame being forgotten. Incredible promise. God says he's going to rebuild the city with valuable stones. Perhaps we could say, thinking back to last week, living stones. There's a promise of protection, a promise of provision. They're told instead of the nations coming to take you, the nations are going to come to receive you. Utter turnaround in terms of future promise. The promise of future hope is a key theme. The third thing that unites these two things, that makes both of them possible to live together, is the faithfulness of God. Little pop quiz before you fall asleep. Verses 1 to 3. Sing, married woman, you never bore a child, burst into song, you are the children of the desolate woman in large places of the tent. Who's that talking about? The next two questions you can answer correctly, even if you can read. You don't need to know any Bible. This one is for people who know a little bit about them to show off and feel smart about themselves. What story is being drawn here? Anyone want to have a guess? Barren woman will have many descendants. Sarah, Abraham. Leave the country of your fathers, go to this place. Even though they're old and past childbearing years, even though she's barren, they will have children and their descendants will be more numerous than the stars of the sky. They will be a blessing to every nation, every nation will be blessed. Isaiah's prophecy is drawing on the covenant of God with Abraham. I will bless you and make you into a great nation. That's covenant one. The next covenant he brings is in verses 9 to 10. Anyone got any ideas at all of what covenant? He's drawing on in verses 9 and 10. I mean, the words in there. Noah. He promised Abraham, his family, to Noah. He promises every living thing on the face of the earth will never again will be destroyed. The earth was blood. And he hasn't. It's the second covenant he pointed to. Third covenant he pointed to, chapter 55, verse 3. Anyone else be able to read in the room which covenant he's pointing to there? David, thank you very much. Makes a promise to David that if David obeys and is faithful, that he will establish his descendants on the on the throne forever, and his love will never be removed from David's heart. As we've already seen, David's descendants utterly fail. 
and yet God has in mind something greater that will fulfill that promise. Isaiah is here tying together the promises of God throughout the ages. There's even another one in there, but it's a little bit too. What's the word? Stretched a bit too far, even for my knowledge. Apparently, Sinai and Moses is in there too, but I couldn't quite see it, so I didn't bring it. But all the covenants of God are tied together in this chapter, and he's shouting at us about God's faithfulness. He's saying, God has been promising you, Israel, through the centuries that he would be faithful to you. He promised Abraham, and hasn't it come to be? Abraham was one man, and he had a wife, and they were too old to have kids, and God said they were going to have children that would become a nation. And Isaiah is here prophesying to that nation. After Noah, he promises, I'm never going to destroy the world again with a flood, even though the thoughts of the people were evil all the time. And he doesn't do it. In fact, he's just said, although I abandoned you from heaven, I'll come back to you. He's fulfilled his covenant promise. We've just been hearing, if you've read the previous chapters, about the fulfillment of the promise of David, a descendant of David, who will be faithful and obey. And therefore, the throne of David will be established at all time, and God's love will never be removed. Isaiah wants us to see the faithfulness of God. He is faithful. He will do what he has promised. He is the one of extravagant promise, overwhelming compassion, and everlasting love. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whether it's of your own doing or it's been done to you by someone else, you will find that if you turn to God, he is kind and compassionate and loving. That's what he wants you to know. Whatever circumstance, whatever circumstance, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, if you turn to the Lord, you will find that he's kind. That is the promise of the scripture. And so very briefly, my talk for today, everlasting hope in times of despair. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whether of your own making or the making of somebody else, if you turn to the Lord, you will find these kind. Humanity is weak. We fail. We fall down. We don't do the good that we desire to do. The bad that we don't want to do sometimes do. We possess this incredible promise of the future, which is glorious. And it makes your heart ache for that kind of peace that we've just read about. The provision and protection of God. You're like, oh God, that is what I want. And the thing that ties it together is God's faithfulness through the ages. There are many similarities, friends, between the circumstances the Israelites find themselves in, as I prophesied and those that we find ourselves in today. I don't want to over-edit. They're not quite the same. There isn't a 100,000-strong army eight miles north of Paraguay coming to kill us. But the world as we know it is kind of fracturing a little bit. It's how it feels. 
If you watch too much news, that's definitely how you feel. The world is changing for them. The world feels like it's changing for us. And in the midst of that comes this promise of hope that's guaranteed by the faithfulness of God. Everlasting hope in times of despair. So I've done the themes. Here's two practicalities as we land. Number one, the only way you can possess everlasting hope in times of despair is by not overestimating the importance of your circumstances. The only way that you can have everlasting hope in times of despair is by not overestimating the importance of your circumstances. The barren woman needs a bigger tent. The people whose youth contains shame will find that it is forgotten. The city that is afflicted by a storm is going to be rebuilt with precious stones. We must not overestimate the importance of our circumstances because of the guaranteed future promise of God. It's very easy to overestimate the importance of your circumstance when every TV channel is on 24-hour news. When you live in a time when news companies require money and bad news are better than good news. Every human being suffers from the affliction that causes their neck to tilt so that you stare at your tummy button. And we think the entire world revolves around us. It's called navel gazing. And when we do that, we think that the situation we find ourselves in is incredibly important because we are incredibly important. Yet when we lift our eyes, we find this eternal story of God's involvement with humanity on which we are part. When we overestimate the importance of our circumstances, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to have everlasting hope instead of despair. The love, compassion, and peace of God can never be overcome by our circumstances. Love, compassion, and peace of God, which He's promised to you and to us as the people of God, can never be overcome by your circumstances. Second practicality the first is don't overestimate the importance of your circumstance. The second key thing you need to know to have everlasting hope in times of despair is that we must not constrain vision to our own lifetimes. Do not constrain vision to your own lifetime. And this is tricky because we all suffer from this universal human inclination to stare at our own belly button. And when you do that, the beginning and end of your life is all that exists. It's tricky for us because we live in the moment of greatest progress the world has ever known. I mean, I already talked about how different the world was 70 years ago when we've been a 70 years ago. Some of you have lived through that entire time. Some of us have lived in the fruit of that time. It's difficult to think beyond the realms of it. 
And although we get constrained by our lifetime, what we know about God is that he blesses to the thousandth generation. We can't think beyond our own lifetime, but God deals in generations. That's why we make such a big deal of our children in this church. We have to make a big deal of our children. They're an inheritance from the Lord. The barren woman will not see her descendants take the cities. If she constrains her vision to her own lifetime, she will not see the promise of God. The people who are existing in the city beset by the wall, the storm raging all around, they will not see that city rebuilt with precious stones. If you live with your vision constrained to your lifetime, you're robbed of the everlasting hope that God promises, because God deals from generation to generation. The fulfillment of God's promises are happening amongst us. They happened amongst the people in Isaiah's time. They've happened throughout history. They will go on happening when every one of us is in the land. The fulfillment of God's promises do not require you and I. We live in the eternal fulfillment of the promises of God. Death is but a mere interruption. The death of the Queen is but a mere momentary interruption in the ongoing unfolding of the purposes and promises of God. Our God is not constrained by the goings on of humanity. The one who opened the floodgates of heaven has opened the door through death to a life that will never be interrupted by death again and that will see the utter fulfillment of the world's promises. When we fix our hope in this life and we start telling God he's got to do every single thing in this passage in this life and me now, we set ourselves up for disappointment because we're constraining vision to this point. But if we want to live with everlasting hope and ties of despair, then we must expand our vision. And we must become a people of God who deals generation to generation. In the midst of living, in the midst of this lavish promise of God, we find that you and I are confronted with a decision. We're confronted with a decision not to overestimate the importance of our circumstances, not go to strain vision to our lifetimes, but instead as chapter 55, verses 6 and 7 says, to seek him, the eternal God, to call on him, the God of the ages, to turn to him who is above all earthly things, and to trust him who brings life from death. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, the unrighteous their thoughts, Turn to the Lord, he will have mercy. Turn to our God, he will freely pardon. <clears throat> Friends, we must not overestimate the importance of our situation, we must not combine vision to our lifetimes, but we must not think that God is like us. He is the one of extravagant promise, overwhelming compassion, and lasting life. No matter the situation you find yourself in today, if you turn to him, you will find that he's kind. 